Good morning. My name is Glenna Easton. I will be reading our scripture this morning, which is 1 Samuel chapter 26. 1 Samuel chapter 26, reading from the NIV. The Ziphites went to Saul at Gibeah and said, Is not David hiding on the hill of Hagalah, which faces Jeshimon? So Saul went down to the desert of Ziph with his 3,000 select Israelite troops to search there for David. Saul made his camp beside the road on the hill of Hekelah, facing Jeshimon. But David stayed in the wilderness. When he saw that Saul had followed him there, he sent out scouts and learned that Saul had definitely arrived. Then David set out and went to the place where Saul had camped. He saw where Saul and Abner, son of Nar, the commander of the army, had lain down. Saul was lying inside the camp with the army encamped around him. David then asked Ahimelech, the Hittite, and Abishai, son of Zariah, Joab's brother, who will go down into the camp with me to Saul? I will go with you, said Abishai. So David and Abishai went to the army by night, and there was Saul, lying asleep in the camp with his spear stuck in the ground near his head. Abner and the soldiers were lying around him. Abishai said to David, today, God has delivered your enemy into your hands. Now let me pin him to the ground with one thrust of the spear. I won't strike him twice. But David said to Abishai, Don't destroy him. Who can lay a hand on the Lord's anointed and be guiltless? As surely as the Lord lives, he said, the Lord himself will strike him, or his time will come and he will die, or he will go into battle and perish. But the Lord forbid that I should lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. Now get the spear and water jug that are near his head and let's go. So David took the spear and water jug near Saul's head, and they left. No one saw or knew about it, nor did anyone wake up. They were all sleeping because the Lord had put them into a deep sleep. Then David crossed over to the other side and stood on top of the hill some distance away. There was a wide space between them, and he called out to the army and to Abner, son of Ner. Aren't you going to answer me, Abner? Abner replied, Who are you that calls to the king? David said, You're a man, aren't you? And who is like you in Israel? Why didn't you guard your lord the king? Someone came to destroy your lord the king, and you have done you ha what you have done is not good. As surely as the Lord lives, you and your men must die, because you did not guard your master, the Lord's anointed. Look around you. Where are the king's spear and water jugs that were near his head? Saul recognized David's voice and said, Is that your voice, David, my son? David replied, Yes, it is, my lord the king. And he added, Why is my lord pursuing his servant? What have I done? And what wrong am I guilty of? Now let my lord the king listen to his servant's words. If the lord has incited you against me, then may he accept an offering. If, however, people have done it, may they be cursed before the Lord. They have driven me today from my share of the Lord's inheritance and have said, go serve other gods. Now do not let my blood fall to the ground far from the presence of the Lord. The king of Israel has come out to look for a flea as one hunts a partridge in the mountains. Then Saul said, I have sinned. Come back, David, my son, because... You considered my life precious today. I will not try to harm you again. Surely I have acted like a fool and have been terribly wrong. Here is the king's spear, David answered. Let one of your young men come over and get it. 
The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. The Lord deliver you into my hands today, but I would not lay a hand on the Lord's anointed. As surely as I valued your life today, so may the Lord value my life and deliver me from all trouble. Then Saul said to David, May you be blessed, David, my son. You will do great things and surely triumph. So David went on his way, and Saul returned home. If you thought that this story sounded similar to a scene just a couple chapters ago, you'd be right. In this scene, David sees Saul and his men camped. He grabs one of his companions and sneaks right past all the, all the, all this is 3,000 men with Saul sleeping in the middle with his guard right there. And he has the chance to do something to him. His, his companion says, the Lord has given you into your hands. Take him. David will not touch the Lord's anointed, but he does take part of his equipment and goes across and then begs him not to be doing what he's doing. This was 1 Samuel 26. In chapter 24, remember Saul and his men had stopped at a cave so Saul could go in and do that human duty we all have to do. And inside the cave happened to be David and all his men. And David's, again, companion said, the Lord has given Saul into your hands. Take him. David would not, but he cut off the corner of Saul's cloak and again walked out of the cave when Saul had left his position of vulnerability and pleaded with him. In that chapter in 1 Samuel 24, we talked about that theme that the text gave, and the text was clearly emphasizing God's judgment against evil evildoers. At the end of the text, which often happens at the end of a speech, is at the end where the speaker gives the most important thing. David demanded that Saul stop and said, the Lord will avenge me. The Lord will judge you. As much as this text is similar, and there's lots of things we could note in that, it has a different thrust at the end. The theme in this text is not God's judgment, but God's reward. Specifically in verse 23, David said, the Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. Why are these texts emphasizing these things? David is not letting the moment, the advantage he has, or the disadvantage he's been given determine his steps. He's thinking from this broader perspective of God's expectations of both judgment and reward. And I want to hone in on that today. I want to hone in on that statement in verse 23. The Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and their faithfulness. To be honest, we don't speak that way today. We usually define our lives by finite things. We, we aren't thinking eternal things. We, we, we kind of think up through the end of our lives. Or honestly, most of us aren't even going that far. We're kind of stopping at a certain point or retirement is kind of the stopgap or where we're making our plans or what we're thinking about what we do. This text wants us to think broader than that, bigger perspective. David is talking about biblical eschatology. 
That's a big word, eschatology. But he's speaking about that eternal perspective. He's living in light of an eternal perspective. And we need to learn from this, to not let the eternal perspective get eclipsed by the power of the present moment. You know what I mean by that, perspective? My, one of my sons was playing in an elementary school basketball league. We were still in California. For the last game, he was probably a third grader, second or third grade. For the last game, they were going to call all the players out by name. He was so excited for that. And we got there, and they even had a fog machine going. I, I couldn't even see where the door is. Like, someone's going to get injured here. And we're in the back of this gym, and we had to run out in the fog machine, and they turn it on. And I was one of the dad coaches, and like, I'm, I'm like <laughs> coughing. Like, could we be called out? And we're standing there, and my second or third grade boy pulls me by the arm, and I kneel down, and he goes, this is awesome. This is big time, Dad. I'm like, yeah. I'm thinking, yeah, this is big time. This is big time. That same boy gets to middle school, at, at uh, Roscoe Middle School, and he makes the basketball team. He finds out that their practice, I don't know if they do it now, but practice then is they would put the basketball names up by the scoreboard with their number. And he came home and said, they, I'm going to have my name by the scoreboard. And I'm like, oh, yeah, remember, we've done stuff like this. Remember the fog? Oh, that was, that was little kid stuff, Dad. This is big time. This is big time. Big time. Same guy played varsity football at Hananiga. Super excited to go out with the game and the band and the lights and all the people coming. And would come home and talk about it. And I'd say, yeah, yeah, remember the fog machine? Oh, come on, Dad. The names at Roscoe Middle School, little kid stuff. This is, this is high school football. And then all of a sudden, college starts about to come around the corner. And all of a sudden, a 2,000-person high school can look a little small. Perspective. It changes. I still remember that little stocky basketball elementary school kid grabbing my arm as I'm trying not to inhale smoke, pulling my arm and with that eye of excitement, isn't this awesome? Oh, it's great. I just want to stand by this fog machine all day. <laughs> I didn't say that. I knew for a little boy that was super exciting. He felt like an NBA basketball player for a moment and it's fun. I get it. But boy, does perspective change. The problem is, where are we at in that perspective? Like, where, where, where have we seen? And I'm not just talking about our own lives, where you look back at an elementary school age you, or a middle school you, or a high school you, or a young adult you, but where does perspective change? And is that perspective limited in some way by your own little world? Now, that's all you can see. Or have you seen that bigger perspective? This text is pulling at you to see beyond your average statistical 70 years. It wants you to think eternal perspective. It wants you to think of the present from the end, from the day of judgment, from the moment when God settles all scores, from the reality of his perspective. That's hard to do. Because David is so angry at Saul, and he would like nothing but to end this. You can hear him call. You're chasing a flea. You're the king. You're like hunting in the mountains when you're the king of Israel. Well, I'm nothing to you. 
I could just end this, I would. But he wouldn't let all of those angers and frustrations and perceived rights determine his actions because he knew, verse 23, that the Lord is watching, that the Lord will hold him account. He won't mess with that. But this perspective thing is something we should be practicing all the time. What do you think a Christian funeral is meant to do? The purpose of a Christian funeral is to give all those who are mourning, not just the family, but even the church family, that eternal perspective where we gather and we sing songs to the God who is the God of not just the dead, but also the living. We know that the story doesn't end when our heartbeat ceases. It's gone on for generations before us and it will, until the Lord returns, go on for maybe many generations more. And our story is this small little mist in the morning. Just a small little time span. And we look at our lives from that perspective. We're not just limited to our own present reality. So I want to use this almost repetition of the same story within just a couple chapters together and hone in on verse 23 where David says to Saul at the end of his speech, the Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness to answer this question. Based on David's statement, verse 23, why is God's judgment and reward important for the Christian? Like, why is that a big deal? And if we're being honest, the Bible talks about it all over the place. Talks about in the Old Testament, talks about in the New Testament. Jesus talks about it specifically. But I'm not sure we hear that enough because we're so inundated with our own little world. We're like my little boy who thought that was the coolest moment ever. That was just real kid stuff, fun stuff, but just kid stuff compared to the big, big world that he would soon discover. But if we truncate ourselves into that perspective, we miss what so much of the Bible is actually trying to say. So I'm going to give you four reasons why it's important for us to understand that God is both the one who judges and the one who rewards, reflecting on David's statement in verse 23. But before we do, pray with me. Father, let us hear from you, from your word and this biblical theology that stems from this statement that David made. Help us to be formed and transformed by, as your word says, the renewing of our minds. To offer our lives as a living sacrifice, holy and pleasing to you. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen. Here's the first reason why it's important for us to know that God is both the judge and the one who rewards. It gives meaning to our lives. The evaluation of God, the fact that, as Carly says to the kids, but we could say to you that the Father is always looking, that kind of evaluation is what gives meaning and purpose. There's a beautiful text in Ecclesiastes. Ecclesiastes can be a tough book, it can kind of feel like a bit of a downer book. It literally starts out saying, meaningless, meaningless, everything is meaningless. Right? And he's not just like wearing black and a hood when he says this. He's trying to say, okay, I'm going to start with your perspective, 
And in 12 chapters, I'm going to move you to God's perspective, and I'm going to show you what is meaningful. But let me just look through your eyes at your life and your kitchen and your fascination with your car and your favorite Netflix show and your favorite sports team and your addiction to this and your craving of this, and I'm going to show it all to you and say it's all meaningless. Like, honestly, the good part of life is none of those things. And then at the very end of Ecclesiastes, literally the last two verses, verse 13 here, Ecclesiastes 12, 13, is the second to last verse of the whole book. He sums it all up. And I love when the Bible does that. I wouldn't mind that a little more often. And he says here in verse, this is what he says in verse 13, Ecclesiastes 12. Now all has been heard. Here is the conclusion of the matter. How beautiful is that? I've said everything I need to say. Let me summarize it for you. Here you go. Fear God and keep his commandments. For this is the duty of all human, of humanity. There it is. Fear God and keep all his commandments. That's your duty. That fear God doesn't mean like terror or scared. That means dependence. Like a reverence because you know how big he is and how small you are how significant he is, and how insignificant you are. So it's just perspective. Like you're just kind of blown away. It's not like you're running for cover. Because the one who is the one you're called to fear is also the one who is called father. So it's not fear as in terror. It's reverence, or maybe a category for us would be ultimate, utter dependence. He is everything. We are nothing in comparison. So you need to know who you are because you know who God is and you keep his commandments, that this is your duty. You see, the fact that God is God and we are not God actually gives meaning to our lives. A lot of times people are trying to find their own self without a contrast without a creator to whom that is aligned, you're going to find a whole lot of different things. But when you, the created, compare yourself to your creator, when you, the one who was designed, listen to the designer, all of a sudden, things become meaningful in radically new ways, and things that seemed insignificant all of a sudden now have a whole lot of meaning. Life is, the world, the world is about life and death. It's not just merely about participation. There's no participation trophies for life. This is an interesting thing people have spoken about recently, about this increase in participation trophies, because nobody wants to have somebody sad. Okay, fine. But to me, the point is this. What is a a world when nothing matters? If you've been a teacher, you know full well. I've had this, especially with college students, I've had this ask. Oh, does this count toward our grade? Like, what if I say no? I'm I'm not telling you. Oh, come on. Does this count? What do you mean? You're not going to do it then? Or you're not going to try hard? Like, imagine if that was your job. Hey, hey, full, hey, we got a great salary for you. We got great benefits. We really don't care what you do. Like, don't care when you show up. Like, really, like, that doesn't matter. Um, Hey, but we got great pay for you and great benefits, but it doesn't matter what you do. Who's your supervisor? No one really. No one's your supervisor. Like, have at it. Enjoy. Here's your t-shirt. Seriously? Like, what am I meaningfully doing? 
Like, what's my purpose? What is my accomplishment? What's the goal? Test without grades, work without performance reviews. It all sounds good until you find out that every little thing was meaningless. Some of the most meaningful things in your lives were the hardest. I mean, you might really enjoy the checkout clerk at a grocery store, but the meaningful relationships are the hard ones, the ones that take a lot of years and a lot of work. You might love to do a certain task, but you think of the accomplishment of a major accomplishment that you might have done in your home or at your job. Like you think of the labor, and it was meaningful because it was loaded with loss and success, potential failure. When we know that God evaluates everything, then every moment has value, and every moment has purpose, and every person should live with intentionality. Here's a second reason it's important for the Christian to know that God is both the judge and the one who rewards. It gives definition to human action and declares things good or evil. We may dread the evaluation, but accountability means we count. Like if your boss never cared, then you're meaningless to the organization. If your spouse didn't care if you come home, then you're meaningless in the relationship. If your kid's like, I honestly don't care, Dad, if you show up to the game, whatever, you don't matter. You're just unattached, which in one way sounds like the modern vision of utopia, but actually would be you literally are nothing. There's no value. There's no purpose. God cares about everything we do. Who cares how I speak to my family in private? Well, besides your family, God does. Who cares how I use the internet, especially when I'm all alone? Well, actually, God does. Who cares what my thoughts are, what I'm thinking in my mind? I'm not going to say it. I'm just going to think it. Actually, God cares. Who cares how I use my money? It's my money, isn't it? Actually, God cares. God does care, and he does promise to hold you accountable because you are meaningful. He made you with design and purpose, and he cares enough about you and his design that he will hold you to account. Because everything is evaluated, everything matters. Every day and every action is significant. Again, here's in your notes I have Ecclesiastes 12:14, the last verse of Ecclesiastes. Right? You heard your duty, fear God, keep your commandments. This is the duty of all mankind. Very next and last verse, for God will bring every deed into judgment. And that doesn't just mean in a bad way. That means he will evaluate everything, including every hidden thing, whether it is good or evil. Like, so it's, it's not even just what you do on the surface. It's not just what your neighbors see. It's like what nobody sees when you're at home alone, every little thing. That means every decision, every thought, every action has significance. And in some way is promoting what is good or itself is reflecting evil. 
Even what we do in secret, something from which we get no praise or no shame, is now given extreme importance. So just that we know, here's David, right? He's literally had twice his, his counselors say, let me, let me just kill the guy, right? They wouldn't even know we were here. Conveniently, the Lord had put them in a deep sleep. Let's just end this. Nobody will know. I won't tell anybody. It won't even take two thrusts with the spear. I got him with one. The Lord would know. Like he had that little conversation standing right there over the sleeping king. No, the Lord will know. And the Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and faithfulness. Brothers and sisters, if that is true for the non-believer, how clearly is that true for us? The third reason, and this, this hopefully helps us with the first two, the third reason why it's important for the Christian to know that God is the one who judges and rewards is that it helps us control our sinful urges and to crave the most important things. It's like developing our appetites. Paul speaks about this in Galatians 6, 7 to 8. Many have argued that 1 Samuel 26, 23, that verse that we're reflecting upon, is literally the backdrop of what Paul says in Galatians 6, 7 through 10. And I broke that up into two parts for these last two points. Here's what Paul says in Galatians 6, 7 to 8. That's in your notes that are printed for you. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. Remember what Ecclesiastes says? God will bring every deed into judgment, even the hidden. And then Paul ends verse 7 and says, A man reaps what he sows. Whoever sows to please their flesh from the flesh will reap destruction. Whoever sows to please the Spirit from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let me explain what those words are saying. God has built a principle into the world that is based on his perfection and holiness. God will punish or promote all actions in accordance with his holy perfection. So this isn't just a warning about the way God designed the world and the purposes for which he made you and expects you to live, but it's also a direction that we must align our lives with God. We have to fear him, and keep his commandments, for this is the duty of every person made. So that's where Paul says, here's what's going to be helpful. You can either be led by the flesh or be led by the spirit. So the, so the spirit, you may, sound, you may sound familiar, that's that we become a Christian, we are aligned with God the Father through Christ, and the spirit indwells us, lives within us, so we're supposed to follow the leading of the spirit in contrast to the flesh. The flesh is Paul's or the Bible's way of talking about our sinful condition, our sinful nature, that we instinctively, because of Genesis 3 and the fall, desire the wrong things. We crave the wrong things. And you discipline yourself not to follow all those cravings. So that's what Paul is saying. If you please the flesh, if, if that's the seeds you're planting, your harvest is destruction. But if you seek to plant the work of the Spirit, the life of the Spirit, your harvest is eternal life. Elsewhere, God 
gives us through Paul and others images to understand the Spirit of God that we are following out or living out. Other metaphors are, and Romans 8 has, I'm stealing tons of these, we should be walking in the Spirit or being led by the Spirit or marching in step with the Spirit. I love that image. It's like, like a young kid where the snow is just almost insurmountable for them to not tip over. And so a mom or a dad with their bigger boots walks in front, and then the little kids just put their footprints right on the steps that mom and dad have already made. So picture like the Christian walk, having that image of you walking in the Spirit, marching in step with the Spirit. There it is. You, like, you know the Spirit who inspired God's Word, or that guiding in you to move away from the urges that would be common in your sinful flesh, and pursue the work of God in your saved spirit. And by knowing that God is watching all of this, like Carly said in regard to parents to kids, like if you know mom and dad are saying, clean your room, and then they're just like standing there, not in a mean way, but in an accountability way, you'd probably clean a little bit more rather than go on doing what you were doing otherwise. So it helps you control your sinful urges and to crave the most important things because God will hold you accountable. It's basically God saying, you matter. Your purpose is important. Your design is not insignificant. I made you and I will hold you accountable. It's not like you can do whatever you want. Who cares about you? Have fun while it lasts. Right? No, you matter. Your neighbor matters. Your money, your skills, your time, they matter. And I want you to use those with proper purpose and intentionality, and I will hold you to account. None of this is saying that Christianity is based on our works at all. The same God who is holding us account is also redeeming us when we fail. Those are not contradictions. What this is saying is that the Christian, the person who has tasted the goodness of God and has seen the distinction between God's glory and humanity's sinfulness, will want to, should want to, crave the things of God and curb the broken things of themselves in this world. Well, the last reason, the fourth reason that it's important for Christians to know that God is both the judge and the reward is because it motivates us to live for God and for others. So that we don't lose focus on the goal. Again, those last two verses of that section of Galatians 6, Paul adds one further exhortation. Galatians 6, 9 to 10. Again, in your notes. He goes, let us not become weary in doing good. Like it's so easy for us to kind of just, especially in this world, right? With iPhones and iPads to make it about me. And like, he, God knows that's going to be the impulse. He's like, don't, 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 don't grow weary. Don't just go, don't just say, I've, I've done a few things. I just want them. It's about me. I'm vegging. I need me time. Like, okay, I, okay, fair, good rest and Sabbath are categories that are good, but it's not just about you. Don't, 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 don't. Don't become weary in doing good. For at the proper time, we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. 
Then this is verse 10. Therefore, as we have opportunity, like not every moment, but when you see a place that you can contribute, when you see God's intentionality could be at work through you, let us do good to all people. And then he adds this, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. If we let our own desires and emotions decide everything we do, if, if everything has a return on investment for us, how much would we actually do? We would live primarily for ourselves. When we are being held responsible for how we treat others, like when somebody says, hey, those people at your church, guess what? Those are my children. I want you to take them and hold them responsible. I want you to take them seriously. Do you understand me? When we are held responsible for how we treat others, it's like we're given a medicine to fight the sickness within us that loves self and not others. We, we, had a, we, had a, we had a guy at our church several years ago that worked for the FBI. Fascinating workforce and experience, and I remember having some fun conversations with him, and his kids were similar to my, his boys similar to my boys, and I was inviting them to come to a Bears practice thing uh, at Olivet Nazarene with the Bears I don't think they do there now anymore, but they used to practice. And I was going to take the boys there. So take my boys, and they could each bring a boy, and we were all going to go. Found out he has never, had never let anybody watch his kids. And I was asking not just to have them in my, the security of my house, but to take them into a public place. This guy's an FBI agent. Like he had specific gas stations right around here he would not go to based upon statistical analysis of crime rate. Everything was calculated. He literally would speak about restaurants and venues like this as having the kill zone. He would never sit in the kill zone. He never had his back to any door, wherever he was at. He was strategic in everything. And some guy just said, could I take your two young boys into an overly crowded place with thousands of people where high, the rate of kidnapping is whatever percentage? And he said, you know what? I've never done it before, but I'm going to let you take them. And I'm like, I don't know if I want to take them now. I'm really thinking it's the Bears. Maybe we'll go see the Packers. I mean, they're a better team. No, no, seriously, it's okay. He goes, it's probably good for me. It's like, it's not good for me. It's really not good for me. So I took these boys. I have never been more nervous. I literally did not even hold my own boys' hands. Like, you're on your own, boys. Kiss your mother goodbye. I literally was like, I'm holding these two boys, and my boys are on the outside. I actually put my bigger boy on the far outside and said, he can take on at least one adult. Like, we're good. Like, let's go. Like, I'm holding these boys. And I was so, I could not wait to get home. I didn't even watch the bears. I'm just like on the boys. We're going to call this hug time for seven hours. Come give me a hug. I was like, I am never doing that again. Why did I feel so much pressure? Well, I felt a little bit of that because I was dealing with two kids who, I mean, he's, he was probably like surveying me the whole time behind, like he's behind the portal potty. Like there he is looking at me or kind of one of those. I don't know. But I felt an additional pressure that I hadn't even thought of before. Or the time I remember just before I got married when I was sitting in front of the fireplace with my father-in-law. And I was just this young 23-ish year old young man 
with a limited perspective, excited to marry this woman that I loved, and was thinking of it like, remember, like my elementary school son, like not the perspective of almost 24 years of marriage now, or of a father with someone's daughter. I didn't think of that. And I was striking up a conversation. I wasn't able to have these conversations with my dad, and I'm like, talk to me. Tell me about how, how I can love your daughter well. And he's just, now he's retired pastor, but that pastor in him, and he's full of emotion, he tears up. And he says, well, let me frame it to you this way. You are taking one of the most precious things in my life, and I am entrusting her to you. And I'm like, mm? I didn't think of it that way. So just imagine this precious human being that her mother and I have cared for for 18 years and treat her that way. So I remember standing there at the ceremony on a not very hot day, sweating profusely. Or when we drove away from her family and tears were there and I just felt the way, again, it wasn't like, I, it wasn't like with, the, with the boys and the FBI agent, I'm not doing this, but it was a different perspective than just the young man and the young woman and we like each other. It was the depth of life. It was some of the most important things and I got a glimpse of that. I tasted it from the perspective of a father-in-law that I needed to see because I wasn't there. Though I have a daughter now and some young man someday may ask me and I will have to have a little bit of a conversation with two big brothers standing right there. Brothers and sisters, the Lord looks at you and he wants you to have perspective from his vantage point. And he loves you so dearly. And he loves the people sitting next to you. And John 3.16 says he actually loves the whole world. He loves this community that you live in and work in. And this is what he says to you. He says, everything you do matters. Like every action that you do is significant. I designed the world. I built purpose and intentionality into everything. So what you do publicly, what you do in secret matters to me. And if you are a Christian, then you feel the weight. There's that fear. You feel the weight of your creator and your Lord over your life. And you take it on as your duty to do what he has asked you to do. Because you know, interestingly, that that's the best life that God designed for you and for the world. And then even when it's to your advantage, you hear the words of the future king of Israel say, the Lord rewards everyone for their righteousness and their faithfulness. And we, the church, hear verse 23 and say, may that be us. Let's pray. Father, thank you for your word which ministers to the soul, but it also speaks into our lives and teaches us. It rebukes us, it corrects us, it trains us in righteousness. Help us to be people who take seriously that you, God, are the judge. You are the one who rewards. That you have made this world with purpose and intentionality that all of us and everything we do matters. And that we should live faithfully and righteously under your lordship. Help us to hear that. Not in a way that minimizes the gospel. That same God who demands is also the one who provides. 
but just to feel the weight of a father saying to his children, you matter. What you do matter, because I matter. And help us to live that way. Help that to be reflected in the way that we, the members and attendees of Hope Evangelical Free Church, live this week. How we talk to one another. How we live in secret when no one's watching. And how we pursue the good of our brothers and sisters in Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name. Amen.